This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth. Speak truth. We start. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, how's it going, man? I know we missed the week and, and folks uh, are probably missing the podcast, hopefully, at least. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> um, I think so. But, but how have you been? Been real well. I, you know, I cannot, will not complain. Uh, things are good. How about you? Been good, man. Same as you, you know, busy schedule. I was just in Minneapolis uh, speaking for Transform uh, Minnesota, which is a great organization up there doing a lot of work bringing Christians together. So shout out to them. Really appreciated the time and, and learned that we have some uh, some listeners out in Minneapolis. So I always appreciate appreciate hearing that. Uh, but a very good time. Uh, got to to meet some folks, got to, to speak into that space, man, and, and really had a good time. Now, usually we we have some fun on this part of the episode and in the introduction, but I want to use it this time for a confession, Um, a confession. And also just to talk very quickly about the importance of apologies. I recently, I think within the last week or two, uh, sent out an email that was somewhat accusatory, was somewhat it was a tough email. Right. I mean, I didn't call anybody out their name and I don't think I send in that way. But as soon as I sent it, I realized that I didn't have all all the information that I thought a conversation went a certain way. But there were actually a background that I background information that I did not realize was there. Uh, So once that happened to me, I said, man, I've really already just snapped. (laughs) Uh, I have a few choices. I can act like this didn't happen or I can eat crow like nobody likes to do and apologize. And after some prayer, I decided to apologize. Now, I don't say this to get a pat on the back. The truth of the matter is it was preventable. It shouldn't have happened. But I'm telling this story because I think it's important to know that we are trying to advise people and tell them what to do. But it doesn't mean that we always get it right. And to encourage people when you do get it wrong, to encourage you to apologize and to let you know that, hey, we we don't get it right. But as soon as we find out something isn't the way that we thought it was or that we had done something wrong, Let's do our best to try to apologize. So I hope uh, folks have grace on me. I hope you have grace on others when they have to do the same. Chris, any just general thoughts about those type of apologies? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, apology is a lost art um, in our culture. I just had to apologize this weekend to my 10-year-old. And I think across the board, it's a little bit of a lost art, but it's something that we need to rediscover because, you know, the option of pretending that wrong did not occur or that we were coming up with some rationalization to say that we were actually right 
is usually what you know I sort of see defaulted to more often, which I don't think that leads on the road to to reconciliation and and healing. And that when when that is not available, it's just a, it's a breakdown in discourse. It can be a breakdown in in family. It can be a breakdown in other types of relationships. So, uh, I um. I'm a huge fan of of apology. Obviously, I'm not as much a fan of it when it's me having to do the apologizing. But, you know, it's one of those things like you just explained that we we really have to do. Yeah, man. I mean, I'll be honest. And, you know, as we're all going through the sanctification process, there's going to be times where we have to uh, apologize. Uh, and one thing I have to realize as a, a, a hot blooded attorney that doesn't like to be played with, sometimes you can j- jump to conclusions uh, because you don't want somebody to get the the upper hand. And we just all have to watch that, man. So, again, uh, when you got to apologize, just eat crow and keep it moving. You will feel better at the end of the day. And, you know, it glorifies God. So that's our our introduction. But you know how this goes, man. We want to start out. We want to thank our sponsor. Shout out to the Fetzer Institute. Uh, Shout out to them for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. But we got a lot of stuff to talk about, man. So, as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Let's try that out. All right, Chris, uh, a week or so ago, you may have heard about this story. Uh, Some Yale law students shouted down and accosted speakers in the name of justice and equality. The speaker's offense, Chris, was having views that didn't align with the students' ideological positions which, if you ask some people, is now considered an act of violence. I find this to be very troubling, Chris, I guess for a few reasons. Number one, these are law students. They're in academia. They should understand the value of the free flow of ideas. They should be able to wrestle with disagreement better, even just as a matter of preparation for the discipline that they're going into. Uh, We've apparently, it seems in our education, skipped over Civics 101 and gone straight to indoctrination, ideological indoctrination. The second issue I have with it, Chris, is they're at Yale. These are the folks who many of them will become some of our top attorneys, judges, educators and so on. They're likely to have influence and operate the levers of major parts of our society. And they don't understand a foundational principle about democracy. That's a shame. Now, the third reason, Chris, is that a growing number of young people, but not just young people, agree with this perspective. And as the narrative goes these days, because they're young, they must be right. Right. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Now, y'all know this. Hopefully, folks who have been listening to this podcast for a while have heard this before. And most of y'all probably already knew it. You didn't need us to tell you this. Freedom of speech is the bedrock of democratic self-government. How can the people govern themselves if they can't speak for themselves freely? How do we examine what we believe if dissenting views are excluded? If only certain groups get to decide what everyone else can talk about and what everyone else can think about. How can everyone be represented? They can't. Freedom of speech and freedom of expression are crucial, vital parts of seeking the truth. 
A truly pluralistic society does not fear diverse ideas or disagreements about serious issues. See, we have some folks that are cool only with disagreements that are about small issues that don't really matter. No, this is about the big issues. Many of us thought that all the things that I just said were a foregone conclusion. But the more you look around, the more you pay attention. Sadly, it is not a foregone conclusion. There are folks in high places that are still struggling with these basic principles. Now, the New York Times editorial board felt they needed to come out and say something about this. Now, that that's a big deal, like especially when it comes to, to something like an issue like this, because this, you know, the, the New York Times editorial board is fairly progressive. And when they come to make a statement as a whole, that means they're making a statement for the paper. So this is not just another opinion. This is basically saying this is what the, the this uh, 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 medium stands for. Right. And so they came out and they said that we have they believe that America has a free speech problem. Now, I want to be very clear, especially when we talk about um, free speech at Yale and things like that. There's free speech legal that we're talking about constitutional rights and free speech. But then there's also free speech as a general principle of allowing people to say what they need to say without shouting them down or somehow shutting them down before they get out what they need to say. And the the New York Times editorial board is basically saying that America has a very serious free speech problem. They say that we're resorting to social silencing and depluralizing and it's depluralizing America. And I do agree on that point. Um, Now, how does this happen? This is the first thing that they really talk about in the article. The New York Times says that it happens in large part because the political left and the political right are caught in a destructive loop of condemnation and recrimination around cancel culture. The left refuses to admit cancel cancel culture exists, and the right has chosen to ban books and discourage open discussions in classrooms. Now, they say this cancel culture has left many Americans confused about what they can say and where they can say it. But as the article states, people should be able to put forth a point of view, make mistakes, and take unpopular good faith positions without being canceled. We should all be able to agree on that. Now, Chris, the article goes into some different polls, and and here's what they found in those polls, Chris. It found that 84% of Americans said it's a serious problem for Americans not to speak for fear of retaliation. 46% said that they feel less free to talk about politics than they did a decade ago. 55% said that they held their tongues because they were concerned about retaliation. 61% of women said that they held their tongues because they were because they were concerned about retaliation. So for some reason, this is having even a larger effect impact on women. Now, these to me, Chris, and you may disagree, you may have a whole different perspective. These are some very troubling numbers. Um, But I'll be honest with you, bro. I am really tired of blaming the extremes for everything. I'm tired of blaming the extremes for being what they are. Yes, they're often misguided. Yes, they often cause trouble just in our American discourse in general. But for now, they are who they are. What I want to do right now and what I think would be more constructive is to place the onus, to place the burden on the rest of us. And especially to place the burden 
on Christians. And we know that, unfortunately, there are Christians on both extremes. But for those that aren't there, I want to place the onus on us. For my Bible readers, you know, we, we quote this uh, scripture all the time. Ephesians 4 tells us to speak the truth in love. Over and over, the Bible tells us to speak the truth. Over and over, the Bible tells us, be not afraid. Speak the truth. Be not afraid. You do understand that we have an obligation to speak the truth. Consequences notwithstanding. I'm not going to fight you on this. The threats are real. The extremes are real. Your opposition is formidable. But let me be exceedingly clear. That does not excuse us from the responsibility to stand up for what's right and tell it like it is. And if we're going to be honest with each other, which the Bible says we should do that, too. Then we need to admit that we're not necessarily doing that as a church, like we speak on certain truths, but then we don't speak on other truths that may be a little more dangerous for us. I see too many otherwise opinionated Christians running, running away from tough topics. You see right leaning Christians who are opinionated on a whole bunch of other things, but some of them are scared to talk about racial justice in serious terms. You see folks who are otherwise opinionated, who are left leaning, scared to talk about things like gender identity outside of progressive orthodox terms. And not always because they think it's okay. Many of them know it's not okay, but they don't want to talk about it. And here's my message or challenge to you. You are exactly what you hate in your opposition. You're doing exactly what you hate and what you ask them not to do. You're unwilling to take a tough stance, which is what you criticize your opponents for all the time. Now, this is not about, Chris, this is not about an encouragement to be belligerent. This is not encouragement to go out and start talking about stuff when you're uninformed. This is not about being strident. Please do your homework. Please organize. Please take the time to be able to articulate yourself so somebody knows what you're talking about. But then once you've done those things. Say what needs to be said. And you can be strategic about it. You can do it in ways, you know, sometimes it's about supporting organizations who say what needs to be said. But in one way or another, it needs to be done. And you need to stop supporting people. Who aren't telling the truth who are canceling others for telling the truth. We need to hold those folks accountable. Now, people wonder why the Ann campaign frequently touches on controversial topics. And Chris will tell you it's not because we like to. It's not because we get some kind of joy from it. It's not because it's some ploy to get attention. In many instances, it feels like something we would rather not do. But we do it very intentionally and deliberately Because we're trying to hold the line. We want to make sure conversations about certain truths aren't taken off the table. But if everyone is afraid to talk about it. Eventually, bad ideas will go unchallenged. And so we don't want any bad idea from the left or from the right concerning the issues that we talk about to go unchallenged. Which means sometimes we're going to shoot tweets out there that aren't going to get a lot of likes. People don't want to hear it. But it has to be put out there in the right way. It has to be put out there truthfully. 
Now, sometimes we can do it better. Sometimes we don't, we don't get it right. And we're certainly not the only ones making this effort, not even close. But I will say that as a church, we need to do this better. And one of the reasons, the other reason that I think it's important for the Ann campaign to do this is that I do believe courage is contagious. When you do what's right in the face of danger, you have to believe that you can inspire others to do the same. And you always have to know that it glorifies God. And I'll be honest with you, the reason that the and campaign takes on some of these challenges. There was a time when I was hesitant, when I didn't want to say certain things because I didn't want to hear my tribe come back at me. But a brother named Chris Bruchard, who y'all know from ESPN, was on Fox News, took a very serious stance where he knew he was going to get pushed back. And that inspired me to make the and campaign more bold. May we all take a stance and have that impact on others. Chris, I'm going to pass it to you. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I wonder how long ago was that when the uh, when Chris Bouchard was on uh, Fox News and took the stance that you're talking about? I think he, was, he may have been on Fox Sports still, or he might have been on ESPN. I don't have the details right, but it was, okay. man, it had to be almost 10 years ago. It, I mean, it was... Yeah. At least eight years, and, something like that. Yeah, and my my point on asking that question is, you know, right now where uh, it's it's devolved into this place where now in a in a democratic campaign, uh, the conversation about if is is about if you can actually go on Fox. It's not even about what you say, right, or what stands you take. It's literally, can you even go on? Um, because, you know, the fear of, you know, pushback and retribution and, and even even giving enough, you know, credence to people who you might disagree with that their news station is worthy of going on is like a big thing. And it is, it is a, a very bad sign for democracy it is a very bad sign for civic discourse uh when the response to dissent is to shut it down you know it the the danger in that not only is it you know sort of intellectually lazy but it's a real danger in that for our society because it ignores the possibility that that one can be wrong uh that that you as a person can be wrong that your tribe can be wrong uh, and that's very bad for our culture. A lot of things can fall apart based on that because you can get people and systems and policies way down the wrong path um, only because there was no real and fruitful fruitful discussion. Uh, and so this this is something that I do think is a critical problem in our society, but especially in our politics and in our civic discourse. We have to be able to engage on these things. And I, I love doing it with the AIM campaign um, because we're an organization uh, that's, that's very biblical uh, and we seek to lift up, you know, the uh, a very high view of Scripture to hold forth the compassion and conviction of Jesus. Uh, but as we write about in our book, there's so many things where you can faithfully take a conservative position, you can faithfully take a more progressive position, and the way 
we sort of keep the the broader thing on track is to be able to talk with each other, to listen to people who disagree with us, and to search for those places of agreement, which are places to move forward. And and that that doesn't mean that you abandon your values. Uh, I was I was talking to a reporter today, and you know was kind of being pressed on this question: Can you actually engage uh, in discourse with people you disagree with without abandoning your values? And the idea that that's where the thinking of even journalists is going, like, can you, if you're, if you're having a discussion with somebody who you disagree with, are you abandoning your values? Um, and the fact is, like, no, you don't have to abandon your values to have a conversation who disagrees with you, uh, with somebody who disagrees with you. Uh, and so this this problem, I think, is significant in the society, and I love what what you said, um, Justin. There's something that I say all the time uh, when I'm when I'm out talking, or you know, if I get a chance to to preach on this this topic. It's very important right now uh, that we do what I call organize the middle, right? Um, before the extremes were so far apart from each other and before the extremes were so vitriolic, maybe this was not so much of a thing. Uh, but right now, it is really, really important to sort of mobilize the middle. I, I, I think that the voice of nuance and moderation uh, in today's context is the prophetic voice. You know, and, and sometimes when you think about prophetic voice, you think about something that is a little bit more extreme, a little bit more radical. But I think in our society today, the prophetic voice is the voice that's saying, hey, wait, let's cool it down a little bit. Let's let's stop trying to vanquish each other and trying to imagine a future where this group of people sort of doesn't even exist um, and figure out how we can come together and have a conversation. To me, that's a lot of where prophetic voice is uh, in our day uh, and in our time, uh, you know, is, is why I'm grateful to be a part of the AIM campaign to be able to do this podcast, because I think it is, it's, it's, it's to me, one of the top things that we need to do in our, in our politics and civic yeah. discourse is to bring some revival to this whole space of discourse. Yeah, I agree with you, man. Um, it's so important to step into different spaces. It's so I mean, what happens if you don't have conversations with certain people, then what happens? You don't give them a chance to change. You don't give them a chance to even understand your point of view. And I say this over and over because I had a recent conversation with a friend with someone I was like, man, well, why do you even have conversations with those people? And um, or, you know, certain groups would, would would criticize you for even have those conversations. But it just reminds me of, of Jonah and Nineveh. You know what I mean? Like if if you don't have those conversations, number one, that's your pride speak. Like, is is it God? Is that what Jesus would do is not have those conversations? Or is that your pride taking over? So we do have to step into those spaces. Now, I think I said it backwards initially. Talking about Chris Bouchard, he was on ESPN. He spoke out publicly about the Christian sexual ethic on a very, you know, liberal station. He's now with Fox Sports. Fox Sports. But him st- him saying that and, and standing up the way he did and articulating himself with compassion and conviction really inspired me and therefore the and campaign to do things how we do it. And so it, it, it was a very important moment. And just so y'all know, man, we're, we're going to continue to speak up in a p- compassionate way about issues that are tough because we got to make room for Christians to be. And we can't do it by ourselves, but we're trying to help make room for Christians to have those conversations and not be stopped from having those conversations. So even if y'all scared to retweet us sometimes, you understand why we got to do it. It will always be truthful. It will never be just for the sake of, uh, of 
of being provocative. But I do think it's important. Chris, go ahead and take us out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's um, it, it's just an interesting time uh, that we live in where, you know, usually the provocateur is the one who is saying, hold up, let's calm down a little bit. And that's the part that is seen today as so controversial to be the one saying, maybe we should listen to this guy. Uh, not that we have to agree with him, but we should let him uh, say his piece. I'm a firm believer that trying to um, suppress ideas is actually not the best way to defeat them. Uh, if we look over the course of history, long-term history, even in, in sort of current events, uh, you know, you think about, you know, people who get pushed off of social media and, and all that stuff. Usually when you try to suppress an idea, um, it only grows. I think the way you defeat a bad idea uh, is to confront it with truth and a better idea. Um, and so that's that's why this this sort of like canceling and trying to suppress ideas is so dangerous for our society because those ideas that are actually bad for the culture, we don't, we give them life by trying to suppress them. We don't, we don't kill them. And by I hope trying that's to a lesson them. that the church, the church has learned, right? Because we, there's a lot of things that we su- tried to suppress probably about 20, 30 years ago <laughs> and uh, that didn't work too well for us instead of just, and not only we tried to suppress it, we confronted it with a lack of compassion, right? So sometimes you got to air that out. There's a lot of stuff that I expose my kids to at the right time to kind of inoculate them, say, I don't want to hide this from you. This is what the world does. And this is what it is. Let's have a conversation about it because you're going to find it one way or another. We need to have we need to talk and have that conversation. But one more thing, Chris, that I forgot to bring up. Another thing that's pointed out in this article is the split you see between liberals and progressives on this issue. So like true classic liberals are about open conversation, free expression, let everybody have their say. That was the liberal position. And and a lot of times when we talk about liberals, we're talking about progressives and liberals. They're kind of put together. But you've seen progressives break off from this and say, no, we don't want everybody to talk because they have too much power. This is going on. These these are bad subjects. They're just wrong. They need to shut up. And so you see some of those older classic liberals saying, no, that's not how it works. You don't want to go there. And part of part of the issue is to me, and you can see what the right is doing sometimes too. the person in power. Is actually cool with suppression. Right. So now that you see power going to in the progressive going to the left with progressives and they control more of of this of many of things that they weren't necessarily controlling earlier on. Now that they have the power, no, we do want to shut it up. And so they've split and they've they've changed that principle because now they have the power to shut people up. And so and so they're kind of using that. But the other thing to keep in mind is that when you shut people up, when people don't have a free forum to speak, it's the weaker people. Now, so I would I would imagine that the folks at Yale think they're speaking up for the weaker people, but the actual weaker people do not get to speak when you set it up, when you set something up where people in certain positions who run institutions or who are in the media are the ones who get to say what people need to say. The weak people do not get to speak, even when some people seem to be saying they're speaking for them. Yeah, no, that's that's completely real. Uh, it's I see it happening every day, you know, where folks are 
making policy and they, you know, a lot of times we forget to go down on, you know, 79th and ask that little old lady who's living on her social security, uh, what she thinks about the issue. And, uh, you know, that's where it happens. I, I, I would say, you know, we just have to remember, you know, that it's okay to, to sort of have a side. It's okay to have a political ideology, but nuance cannot be viewed as hypocrisy. And disagreement cannot be viewed as as violence. Otherwise, we're not going to have a, a rich discourse. That is a good word. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris... I've been pretty open about, I mean, I'm talking about a lot of my failures today now that I think about it, <laughs> but I've been, I've been pretty open about my failure to uphold the Christian sexual ethic at times in my life. Now, I've never violated my marriage vows, but prior to that, I certainly fell well short of God's commands. And because of that experience, um, I've seen and experienced the pain that it causes internally and also the pain that it causes others. Um, I try to approach this conversation with humility, uh, compassion, and I really have no condemnation. I have no space to have any condemnation for others on this issue, uh, for those who are struggling with these issues. Uh, I try to I try to have a lot of understanding in that because I've been there. But I do try to educate and warn that when it comes to the sexual ethic, it's not all fun and games like pop culture makes it out to be. And that's why I'm interested in a proposition being made by Christina Imba. Uh, She recently wrote an article in the Washington Post entitled Consent Isn't Enough. We Need a New Sex Ethic. Imba is and I'm I'm really going to read off a lot of the stuff that she says right now, but she makes some very good points. Here's what she says. She says young Americans are engaging in sexual encounters they don't really want for reasons they don't fully agree with. It's a depressing state of affairs, tur- turbocharged by pornography. And she, she says that uh, p- Pornhub averages 150, 115 million visits per day. So it's turbocharged by pornography, which has mainstreamed ever more extreme sexual acts and the proliferation of dating apps. In our postmodern sexual revolution culture, uh, there seems to be a wide agreement among young adults that sex is good and the more of it we have, the better. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need to be tied to a relationship or marriage, that our proclivities are personal and that they are not to be judged by others, not even by participants. Interesting. In this landscape, there is uh, only one rule. Get consent from your partner beforehand. But here's what she says. She says, can, she says, Uh, But the outcome is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. The experience is often sad, unsettling, and even traumatic. She says sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions. It involves our deepest selves. It has vast consequences, some of which can last long after the encounter. She goes on to say, and this is one of her her major points that she makes. She goes on to say that consent is not enough. Emba believes the problem is that consent is a legal criterion, not an ethical one. 
It doesn't tell us how we should treat other people. It doesn't provide a good roadmap when things go wrong. This is the problem with consent, she says. It leaves so much out. Non-consensual sex is always wrong. Full stop. But that doesn't mean consensual sex is always right. Even sex that is agreed to can be harmful to an, an, to an individual, their partner, or to society at large. She, she suggests that a better standard than consent. Now, check this out. This is revolutionary. A better standard than consent is love. And she quotes Thomas Aquinas uh, in his definition of love, which is willing the good for the other. Now, Chris, great. I'm, 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 I'm so glad to see this conversation coming up. Um, I'm, I'm glad that she's been able to articulate it. She has a book coming out in this regard. I think it's going to be worth reading. And still you get the feeling that this seems to be one of those issues where people knew this long ago, but we somehow lost that wisdom and went backwards. Now we know there's some things that played into it, that how women were, uh, weren't protected at times, how they were unfairly controlled at times. There's been hypocrisy when we had rules on men that we didn't have on women. All type of things have gone on to make, to put us in this place, but I think it's the wrong place. Um, Chris, can you talk a little bit about her proposition and its merits? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's very interesting to see this article and this conversation coming up in the Washington Post. Um, but, you know, this is uh, we I don't talk about it a lot on the church politics podcast. I'm glad that we're talking about it today because anybody in my church uh, or even the young people who are in the youth ministry when I was doing youth ministry will tell you that I constantly say there are two places where I believe the church has been fairly underdiscipled, uh, where we haven't necessarily built out a real strong uh, hermeneutic and sort of systematic uh, approach to the biblical teaching. And those two spaces are uh, civics and sex. Um, you know, the, the article, I'm, I'm grateful for the conversation, but I would, I would argue, especially for the church that we don't need a new sex ethic, we actually need an old sex ethic. Um, and it, it, it's to me, unfortunate. you talked about it, Justin, in the last block, um, how the, the church in, in many ways has, not been where we need to be uh, on this issue because the Bible has a lot more to say uh, about sex and sexual ethics uh, than, you know, don't have sex before you get married. uh, Don't have sex with somebody of the same sex. And, um, you know, I think those are our two big don'ts that we have talked about traditionally. Uh, and, And there's much more, uh, discipleship and uh, ethical approach that we could uh, and should learn uh, from the scripture about, um, you know, the 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 more of the the essence of what we are doing sexually. Uh, how is it supposed to bring glory to God? How is it supposed to bring uh, benefit and blessing to the society? Um, to interpersonal relations, uh, it, it is something that is good and, and beautiful in its context. Um, but we we do 
have a lot more thinking to do about this uh, as a as a culture, and the church could by now be offering an a an ethic and an ethical approach, a hermeneutic, a systematic approach, however we want to talk about it. Um, but I don't know that we've cultivated it internally the way that we could have. Um, and I would, I would love to see us move in that direction. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a conversation we need to have um, more often that we need to deal with in a better way. Cause like you said, the church doesn't need a new sexual ethic. Um, I, th- I think it's good that society is saying that they may need one, but I can't think we can both admit that in practice um, that there are better ways to follow it. Uh, that there are better ways to go about it, that the hypocrisy needs to, to to be removed from the church. And so we all should be focusing on that. One of the things that I've noticed, too, though, is that so much of our conversation about in society. So, you know, what she's talking about is not the church she's talking about in society. But so much of the conversation about sexuality and all that stuff in society is so contrarian. And I feel like the world wouldn't be going this far left on some of these things if so many people weren't trying to almost be the opposite of Puritans or, or the opposite of some parts of the church, because some of the stuff doesn't even make sense. I mean, even some of the people that we put, it's you can almost tell that some famous people are just trying to go against like like Madonna. Right. Was she doing something great or was she just going against kind of like the Catholic sexual ethic? You know, and you have those folks today where it's like the draw is this defiance. It's this very empty defiance of actual mores and things of that nature. And and, and we need to be. We need to be watching out for that, even within the church, you have some backlash against purity culture. Now, I wasn't raised within purity culture per se. Um, I understand that it has some excesses from what I've read. Um, and those excesses need to be addressed. So I don't I, I can't really comment too deeply on that because I, I wasn't in that culture in that same way. Um, I think in many ways, that's a kind of white evangelical culture. Um, not to say that they anybody thought it was OK to do to do that stuff. But I think the purity culture is something very specific. But I will say this for those who are attacking it. Please understand that the permissive alternative. Is very, very bad. So as we critique something, let's make sure that we don't remove all of the boundaries. As we critique something, let's be very clear that we're saying, "Okay, this was wrong about it, but don't go all the way into this permissive thing over here. Because I see too many people and people I would expect to be more careful with criticisms. And I I, I accept those criticisms, but you don't see the caution, any caution about the what what, how it could actually probably be worse. Um, And so that's that's one thing that I would put into this conversation. But we got to find better ways to talk about it uh, as a church and and not run from it or try to hide it. Because as we just talked about, when you try to hide certain things, they actually end up growing uh, and festering. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful for the conversation. I think that, that there's a lot uh, to unpack here. I love, I love the way the article uh, is a person is, and I don't know much about the background of the author uh, here. Um, but it's, it's something that we do need to, to wrestle with in society. Uh, and it's something that I, I really pray that the church will sort of take the lead on. Um, because what I see coming out of the article is this acknowledgement of the fact that 
sex is deeply human, right? Like it's, it is not arbitrary. Uh, it cannot be viewed as, as singularly as a physical act, right? Like it touches the deeper uh, soulish elements of our humanity uh, in ways that are profound. And the society has been willing, I think, for a period of time to ignore that sexual reality. Um, in order to, you know, I, I would say uh, to achieve some some important means, right? Like, uh, you know, because you're talking about horrible abuses uh, that people have experienced, women, um, you know, children and youth. Uh, and so you, you have to figure out how to break, you know, in, in the effort to, to, to liberate sex from a sort of, a, a, a bad and, um, you know, unhealthy sort of patriarchy. Uh, we found ourselves, and I don't know why I wasn't there to start the conversation, um, but it sort of winds up in this place where, um, where sex became something that was treated as something much cheaper than what it really is. Uh, and I, I, I love the idea of, of saying that, you know, we have had uh, in our society uh, for a long time abuses and neglect and overstepping and a lot of things that were bad, um, but we, we can still acknowledge that, that sex is something more than just a physical interaction uh, between two people is not over. Um, this is something that the, the, the article sort of gets into is not over when it's over. Right. And so to bring the conversation back into that space, I think is good and healthy for the society. And I think it's a real opportunity for the church to lead because we have sacred text, uh, that guides are thinking on this. And like we talk about a lot in the end campaign, you don't even have to get out there and just be theological in the civic space. Um, you know, we can stay committed to that uh, sort of civic pluralism, uh, but, but we have truth uh, and, and great ideas uh, that can guide thinking uh, and help us be something like uh, in this culture. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I appreciate about the author here. She puts it in very practical terms, right? These are not necessarily theological terms or practical terms and, and take it from someone who has been quote unquote liberated and miserable, right? Treat this with great. Um, I mean, treat it for what the Bible says that it is right. Um, with, with great value, treat your body with great value. Um, there is nothing cute. There is nothing good about cheapening yourself or cheapening uh, that that act. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, the, the Christian sexual ethic is on to something. It's, it's interesting to see folks. And I don't know Emba's, Emba's background. I think I did see something. And you, I might want to check this out. Michael Ware, I think, mentioned that he might be interviewing her. So if he's interviewing her, you might find out maybe she does have a Christian background. I don't know. But I think she articulates this very well in practical terms. And I was glad to see it. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? 
As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast as many of you know, unless, again, you've been living on the rock, uh, President Biden has nominated a new Supreme Court justice. Um, this is Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. She had her Senate hearings uh, this week. Uh, she's coming from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and has a lot of qualifications um, and it's looking good for her. I think she did a really good job in her he- in her hearings. Um, she was well prepared in the hearing, I should say. She was well prepared. And um, it hasn't been, thankfully, as eventful as some of the more recent, some of the other recent uh, uh, Supreme Court hearings that we've 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 seen uh, not too long ago. Uh, Although I will say that um, unsurprisingly, you had Senator Hawley who tried to put on a show for the cameras. And it makes it almost makes, you know, some people are arguing that there shouldn't be cameras in these hearings because folks always want to make a show and, and, you know, they want to be. Uh, viral on Twitter and social media and all that stuff. And I think there was some of that in there. Now, I fully expect that, you know, from from what it sounds like, I fully expect that she will be uh, confirmed. Um, I do want to bring up one issue, Chris, that some folks have been talking about. I think it's worth us addressing at least uh, uh, quickly is that some conservatives were upset by Biden saying that initially before he, you know, had had even kind of looked in who, who to who he was going to choose from him initially, even I think during the campaign, saying that he was going to choose a black woman. Some would say that would mean that it wasn't based on qualifications. It wasn't based on who was best for the job. It was based on just race. It was based on identity politics. And I've been asked about that quite a few times. And do I think that's right? Do I think that's how things should be? And this is my response to that. Ideally, things shouldn't be that way. Ideally, you wouldn't even have to mention somebody's race or their uh, their gender before you made a pick. Unfortunately, we live in a country that has a history, even within its laws, of discrimination based on race. Discrimination. um, that would keep someone like Brown Jackson out of that type of seat. The reason why there are other black women that probably were qualified weren't even considered. And so when you take that, when you put it in a historical context and you consider how people have been left out and left unrepresented, although I don't think it should be that way, that's the way that it is. And I believe, thankfully, you still got someone who is qualified. Doesn't mean that we agree with 
every decision that she's made. But we do have to deal with the reality that if there weren't affirmative actions taken, and this doesn't mean that she's an affirmative action case, but I think he was taking affirmative action to make sure someone that was qualified that represents a certain unrepresented uh, group on that bench was placed into that situation. You can like it or dislike it, but I think you have to look at it through the lens of our history and the exclusion that our laws uh, included, you know, uh, based on race. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I too, have talked about this uh, a lot. I, and th- there are two things that I say. Number one, I do, I do sort of wish that um, President Biden didn't take that route necessarily, not for many of the reasons that uh, we've heard from uh, other people, but simply because I just wonder if it um, if it served to cheapen the nomination when it did happen. In the same breath, though, I try to remind people that if you really think that the person, anytime a president is appointing somebody to the Supreme Court, uh, if you think that the person who is selected for that appointment is, quote, the most qualified, you have a a false notion of a meritocracy uh, and should probably try to disabuse yourself of that notion, right? I, the, I think the reality is more along the lines that there are a number of people who have the qualifications to be uh, a justice on the Supreme Court and a president will choose, you know, those qualifications are almost baseline. Uh, and then other factors play into any president's selection of a nominee. Uh, and, and you know, it, it, no president is going to explain it to you quite that plainly, uh, but it, it is not purely a, a test of qualifications. And so, you know, for me, knowing that there are African-American women in this country um, who are qualified to be on the Supreme Court, I would personally have rather seen a president even if you know in while you're in the campaign in your heart that I'm going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court, you know, and where I, where I grew up, we had a thing, you know, don't talk about it, be about it. Um, and I think you just open it up to those criticisms from, you know, people who wouldn't want to see, you know, a Democratic president appoint a Supreme Court justice, period. Yeah. Uh you open up an, an avenue for that kind of criticism by sort of making that announcement. I get why you do it. You know, you're trying to win the election. Yeah, and but. if we're talking about people who aren't qualified, right, if, if it's somebody who clearly didn't have the qualification, then it's like, come on now. But when you assume, as you said, that there's a number of people that are qualified and I mean, these considerations, you know, they consider a lot of things when they talk about that you consider ideology. They consider ideology or decisions on certain issues. Um, I think it would be, although I believe that Amy Coney Barrett was qualified just based on her resume, you can't say that nobody considered that they would want a, wo- a woman on the court, right? That, that was that was surely in, in the conversations that I heard, uh, that was surely a consideration that they, they're probably going to want a woman. Um, and so th- th- that's how it goes. In a perfect world, should it be like that? Probably not. But we're dealing with certain a certain past that has excluded people. And we need to be honest about that. Anything else, Chris? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, uh, again, I think that it's, it's really um, encouraging to me that the hearings have been mostly uneventful. Uh, just like I was said in the other block, the voice of moderation, uh, I think is, is the prophetic voice 
um, in in a moment. And if we if we get through a Supreme Court appointment that is uneventful, maybe even slightly bipartisan, that sort of uneventful moment, I think, will be profound for the country. So, yeah, I agree. So I'm going to go ahead and claim it. I'm going to say uh, congratulations to our new justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, may the Lord be with you. Uh, and as you know, uh, if we have to critique her, we will do the same as we would do any other justice. Uh, so you know how we get down. Well, that's another episode of the uh, Church Politics Podcast. As always, we ask you to get involved with the movement. If you want to give to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics, or you just want to give to the and campaign movement, we need you to get involved. Don't just stand on the sidelines. There's too much going on. And we are nothing without the body of Christ and the support of the body of Christ. As always, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp.
This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.